Race matters. 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 I'd like to acknowledge that we are broadcasting on unceded Gadigal land. This land has been in the hands of generations of Gadigal custodians for thousands of years before us, and it's going to continue to be in their hands for a long time after us. This is a meeting place for sharing knowledge and stories and song, and we are privileged to be part of that storytelling today and every day here at FBI Radio. I pay my respects to Gadigal elders past and present. We're broadcasting from Redfern right now. Redfern is the birthplace of black theatre in this country, and it's a site for resistance and resilience for First Nations peoples. You are listening to Race Matters. This is a show made by people of colour, speaking with people of colour about the ways we understand and value our racial identities. I'm Darren Lasagas. And I'm Sada Khan. It is NAIDOC week as well. Happy NAIDOC week, you mob. It's our first NAIDOC week back in July, in the usual week that we have been holding um, this um, monumental um time, this monumental event and week-long celebration of ourselves, our resistance, our joy and our ongoing fight within the colony, but also our existence here um, as the oldest continuing surviving culture on the planet. And so this is the first time where we can kind of be back in this week in July since 2019, since before the pandemic started. And it's been a bit of a harder week to go into because of the rain. There's been so many cancellations. And I know that a lot of mob are really feeling the kind of absence of that, especially when, you know, we've been waiting so long to kind of get this week back um, in the month of July over the last few years of lockdowns and that. So before we get into this show, we just thought we'd want to... um, spend the show reflecting on all of the beautiful people that have um, come through Race Matters over the years, all of the First Nations people that we've had the privilege to share space with and have some pretty um, timeless yarns, I would say. Me and Darren have had the privilege to kind of listen back to some of them and, you know, some of them are three years old now and still listening back. They're quite they're quite overwhelming to listen to in a way, like they're a little bit emotional they're, um, because they still resonate so deeply. Um, with the dialogues that we still have today. And so um, we're going to be able to share some of that with all of you today. Um, And just quickly as well, like, you know, the theme for this year of NADOC is get up, stand up, show up. And it's a theme that is calling for, like, it's talking about how we all must continue to get up, stand up, show up, force this systemic change and to keep rallying around our mob, our elders and our community, whether it's environmental, cultural or heritage protections, um, comprehensive process of truth-telling, calling out racism, all of the different um, facets and layers there is to existing within the colony and so-called Australia. Um, It is an interesting thing, though. It is a theme that I struggle with connecting to I think um I don't know if that's because of the last two years what's been happening globally um but particularly here on um so-called Australia and so it's a theme that I kind of felt a little bit tired from when I heard it when it said get up stand up show up I thought that's 
It feels, it feels a little bit rich to ask that of mob when that's all we kind of do. It's kind of a given. The last two years of being um, locked away from our communities, trying to protect our communities in a way that we've not had to before because it's, you know, it's we have seen more glaring issues around our healthcare system and who um, is protected and who's not. And these are things that we already knew, but they were, were made very much more obvious to us as well in the last two years. And so um, yelling, get up, stand up, show up just feels a little bit... Um, it doesn't it doesn't feel like something i am resonating with in this current moment in time i don't know how other mob feel around that but for me get up stand up show up is something that needs to be shouted at people that are non indigenous and for me this you know this week is not about indigenous people and i don't ever want this week to be catered to people that are not black because this week is about us and it's always been centered around protests this week and it's grown into a week of many other things as well like you know particularly our joy which I feel like over the last two years I've really gotten to a place where I'm just like I need to find like I always say I'm angry but lovely but I need to find my space between angry and lovely because I'm also like I can't function right if my mental I can't function for my community if my mental health is not right and so for me the theme around that I was just like but some of us are tired and some of us are really for me getting up standing up and showing up is just getting out of bed it's just it's really showing up for myself. If I don't show up for myself, how am I going to show up for my mob? And I, I, that's why I was like, mm, get up, stand up, show up. Shouting that in my face doesn't make me feel very good. Um, I know it's probably not intended like that, but I just kind of wanted to make a critique on it because I feel like, you know, us mob, we should be allowed to share critique. And this is only and this is also what I'm discussing right now is only for mob's ears as well. And I just wonder if this is a common thing that we're all feeling. I know amongst me and my own community, my own circles, it's definitely um, a uh, kind of feeling that we are having. It's very much like I understand getting up, standing up, showing up can take many forms. And I understand that the theme is intended to also move beyond just acknowledgement and good intentions. I totally get that. Empty words and promises, a thousand percent. But then at the same time, I'm like, when can we get NADOC to centre around just us again? Just about what we what we want for ourselves, what we intend for ourselves, instead of it always being about fight and fighting the colony and fight, because that's all very important, but we also need to remember that that's not something that was put on, that's not something that we strive for, that's something that's put on us and we don't really have a choice but to fight. Um, and I think that's something to think about um, as blackfellas, Um because, you know, this um, colony can really make us forget that, like, struggle is not our journey. Struggle is not our whole identity. Um, and we have every right to critique that and remember that and want to bring it back to that. So those are just my thoughts on the theme this year. Um, I understand if people don't necessarily agree with it, that's totally fine. But I also want to be honest to myself as a black woman um, and honest to how I feel around this week and around this theme. And, you know, I think that this show functions um, in a space of truth telling and I don't want to ever not deter from that.
An often common vibe every NADOC year is the fact that NADOC is not an one-off event. It's not yearly because we are not black for one week of the year. NADOC is a week that's just become a moment for us to remind ourselves of our strength, our continual resilience and our ongoing resistance towards the colony. So NADOC week for me this year is a reminder of the colony and that we need to stay vigilant in our awareness that colonization never ended. Every month, every week, every year and every hour, there are attacks on First Nations people, on black peoples. So if we celebrate this week, it's for us. If we celebrate, it's only going to be fight for us, by us, not for any corp, not for any gala ball or not for any gammon government morning tea. So if you are attempting to engage with mob this week, are you only doing it this week? Because if that's the case, go away because you are in the way. Unless you are active against the systemic, ongoing cultural genocide of our people, then your NADOC post is offensive. Smoke a mirror, fake be feeling the day. It leave me feeling away. I'm peaceful, but this shit finna change. My peaceful, I got a villain to play. Smoke a mirror, smoke a mirror. I hope for clearer, hope for clearer. Everybody fake, everybody two-faced. Everybody hit the ground, everybody too late, bang. See, they say no country for old men. No, no initiation needs, so I can never be a grown man. Oh, see, they say no country for old men. No, no initiation needs, so I can never be a grown man. My boss was stoked, yeah. Today on the show, we're tracing the long lines of conversations we've had with First Nations guests over the last little while to amplify the plurality of their stories. And a heads up, a content warning on some of these stories. First up, you're going to hear Sada Khan and her interview with Gumbang Gearman and musician Tasman Keith himself, reflecting on the song you just heard, how hip-hop creates stories across country and communities, and the emotional journey to create music that is deeply related to his personal journey. How did that track come to fruition in the monks this year? Um, it was actually made in 2017. Well, the chorus in the first verse was made in 2017 and was supposed to be on the Mission Famous EP, um, but we scratched it because we made a bunch of other songs. And so James, Koya James, um, rung me, I think, in April and said he wanted to make it a part of his album. Um, and I was like, yeah, of course, you know, because that's you know my brother and anything he needs. Um and then we turned that into a piano version. He sent that to me and was like, this is a special one. As much as the album version was special, just the piano had something that was a little bit more captivating. Mm. Um, and, you know, he sent over the the album version first, obviously, but I had to do the bridge. Um, and then he sent over Don's vocals, who is a member of Mumbali Band in NT. Mm. And when I heard those vocals, I was like, all right, um, you know, game over. Yeah. Um, and so it was just basically like really organic and something that kind of was a slow process but it didn't seem like it because it just like was something we kind of just forgot about and put in the vault and then this year just got brought back up 
Yeah, and it's really amazing how like something that um, gets planted like that idea mm. and how, you know, your own journey and how it changes and especially like in the last few years how so much has kind of um, been evolving in amongst for us as Blackfellas mm. as well, especially this year. I mean, like we have a lot of... Um, creatives of colour on the show and whenever we ask them about, you know, how their stories and how their ideas mm. change on that journey, um, they always um, say that, you know, the initial idea was never um, what they kind of expected it to be at the end product. Mm. It has so many different, like, levels to it. Um, yeah. It's a really, like, you know, it's a really... Um, it's a big growing journey almost. Mm. In yeah, telling, for sure. Yeah, and so... And I feel like that's particular for us as Blackfellas as well because, you know, for us, our story is never ending. It's constantly mm. ongoing. And so the shapes of our ideas are always never going to be what we initially expected. So mm. how has your craft kind of shifted amongst even just the last two years? I think it's just um, it's nothing that I kind of didn't expect because, like, I pride myself on how hard I work just on my penmanship. Um but I knew that, you know, once I had to write the bridge to that song, it came easily because of the stuff that I've gone through in the past two years, you know, since writing the original idea. Um, it's basically just staying ready, staying prepared and going through the things, you know, we go through as black followers that, you know, um, leave us traumatised and kind of unfortunately stays inside of me until I write it out. And I'm I'm, I'm very good at accessing that whenever I need, yeah. um, which I think is a real benefit to me. Just, you know, regardless of music, just my mental, I can just, you know, bring it out when I need to. Um, and so I've just been that until you just staying ready, um, staying in practice and also just going through a bunch of things. It's a, it's really um, telling there what you're saying about trauma and because like trauma really does live in the body and it isn't until there's a kind of trigger there mm. or something happens that, you know, we can think that we've gone, yeah. we've, we've sorted it out, we've, you know, you know, gone through the motions of it, but then something can just kind of happen and it, mm. we can kind of almost relive it all again. So like, you know, to be able to know that music is your um, yeah. go-to as a type of healing. Has that always kind of been the case? Is that, is that something you kind of found in yourself um, recently or like as you were growing up? Because you grew up in a big music family mm. as well. Yeah, I think I think it's always been there. I started writing at eight years old um, and, you know, started performing at eight years old and then kind of really taking it seriously at 14 Um other than that, I was playing like rugby league and stuff, which is always a good outlet, you know, with black followers to see the music or sport. Um, and so I had both and I just got to the point where I had to choose one. And so I chose music and I kind of always knew that that was my way of, you know, letting things go. Um, and even just listening to music is a, is a way to do it. And I think in my community and a lot of, you know, Aboriginal communities, just music is so heavily, you know, involved in our life, whether it's like uncles playing guitars or, you know, aunties that sing and whatnot. There's always like some country music playing or some like old school nineties rap music. Um, yeah, there's no real in between there. Nah, is there? there's not. It's, it's one of it's like it's not even one of the others. Both, <laughs> but it's just like at random times in a party. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's just like it was evident to me um, at a young age that that was my out. Yeah, and I guess that kind of leads into my next um, little question here. Is you know your father is like. A pretty legendary hip hop artist, YRMC. Mm. So hip hop and music has obviously played a huge role in um, your upbringing. Um, was hip hop always a natural medium for you to turn to when it comes to storytelling? And how has it also like 
just informed your own understanding of being an Aboriginal man in white Australia? It was definitely always like uh, hip hop. It was never poetry or never any other forms of writing. Um, I think that is simply because my father put me on stages at eight and it was just a natural progression and something I found that I loved. He never forced us to do it. He was just like, you know, him and mum were split up for a while. So he was like, okay, I've got the kids this weekend, but I've got a show. All right, let me bring them on stage because I've got a babysitter still. Well, you know, um, and so I think it was just something that was natural. Um, and in terms of like, I guess, finding myself within hip hop and how it's helped my community is just like, like I said, like, it helps with communication, I feel, and it helps, you know, tell our stories when sometimes we can't talk to each other because there's a communication barrier within a lot of our communities. And I know because I still, you know, deal with things personally. Um, and it's things like when I go back to Barrival and I perform, it's the most nerve-wracking performance I can do because I'm, you know, singing about what my cousins go through in front of my cousins. Mm. So it's like, are they going to, you know, how are they going to feel about what I'm saying? And thankfully they're forever supportive um, but I think in just in a sense of that is, you know, helps me find, I guess, myself and how I can better my community through hip hop. My mother always says, you know, take up as much space as mm. you can because things aren't the same as what they were back then. Like, for sure. you know, we didn't have as many options as you have now. Like 100%. for us, like all it was was, you know, community service worker or teacher or yeah. nurse, you know, or football player, like, you know, or you work, you know, as a trade, mm. like there was no options. And now, you know, you can do whatever you want. So take up that space, you know, and do you, yeah. how do you kind of, um, you know, what are some of those steps as well for um, uh, to take for ourselves so that our young people can kind of keep shedding off that idea of shame? Um, I think it starts within themselves, you know, if they see their cousin wanting to do something because a lot of us black fellas like as much you know as we talk down each other as a joke like growing up with uncles and stuff you know it's always joking around um but also sometimes you know there's i guess not a lack of support but if somebody wants to do something that's out of the ordinary there's always that why are you doing this um and i think that just purely stems from you know our people being i guess forced for so long not to be confident and so that unfortunately plays off onto others mm. um and so i think as much as like individuals can do within a community to help out others they will then see others you know react the same way to themselves and what they want to do we are spending the show hearing a compilation of first nations voices speaking to their experiences to go beyond any homogenous and typical storytelling you just heard from musician tasman keith it's all about moving from storytelling through hip-hop to writing as weaponry up next though you're going to hear from gunai gundijmara wiradjuri and yorta yorta writer Nayuka Gori. Their work explores black, queer, and feminist politics. And in this conversation, you'll hear them speak about black anger as an action of love. Your writing also like massively resonates with so many black women, both binary, non-binary, and trans. And particularly because you take so much of our rage and our passion and our lived experiences and you formulate it into a single sentence that can like really execute the argument and anyone that's opposing it. So how do you get to that place in your writing? Is there a process of your your own anger and lived experiences before you get it onto the page? Yeah, I feel I feel like writing is like an outlet for the cold fury that I have all the time at the world. Um, I feel like I live in a constant state of fury, which probably I think a lot of people um, do. Um, so it is... I think anger is one of the most useful emotions when it's like 
employed properly or whatever, I think it's really important to be angry. Um, yeah, so I I guess I see what writing, oh, my God, writing. I've been around too many white people. Um, I see writing as like a, like a kind of weaponry um, and I see it as like I see it as it's like tools for people or weapons for people um, or it can also be like comfort or whatever it might be. Um, I think, yeah, definitely the cold fury and also I feel like sometimes like I'm like sarcastic or really snarky. I think that's important. I don't know. I don't know how I think definitely when I first started writing, I would write like it wasn't cold. It was hot. It was like very not sexy hot. It was just like a really hot rage. I just wanted like if I didn't do it, I would tear my hair out. Mm. Like I needed a place to be angry. And so I think a lot of my earlier writing was that. But now um, like my writing has changed and it's it's gotten colder, but it's still furious. Um it can. I, I feel like if I'm not passionate, I feel like anger is my motivator. So if I'm not passionate about whatever it is, then I, I, I don't know if I can finish, if I can actually finish the thing. Mm. But I think sometimes, and like behind that anger, I was gonna, I was, I was about to say like it would be nice to come from a place of love to do something because you love it. But then I realized actually, I think behind that anger is love, like a love of like people and country, and so actually, like anger. Love, I don't know. <laughs> it is. I 110% agree with that statement that like a lot of our anger is coming from a place where we're, we're like our anger isn't essentially about us. It's always about, you know, for our people, mm. you know, and if we don't say something, we have to put those voices out there for our people. And so that the younger mob as well mm. can listen to what's being said because there's so much horrible content out there and um, policies and actions on the streets and everything in the way that we live and how we're housed and um, our health, everything and how mm. we're policed, you know, and just in the schools as well, that if, you know, we're not being angry about it, then we have, it's a form of loving ourselves and loving our mob. Yeah, you're right. You're right. It is, it it is, it is that. I think also, I just, I think so many, I think particularly black women, probably all women actually, but not all women. Um, (laughs) I think especially for black women, there is no space for our anger there is nowhere to put it. It, where, you know, if we, I just feel like we have to be so stitched up all the time and have to be like, kind of, not lose it because of where we exist in the white imagination. Mm-hmm. So, I think, yeah, I don't know. Writing can be really logical, but it's also like quite a passionate thing as well. Yeah, and it's like you said before, it's a, it's a weapon um, for our own kind of outlet for when we do go through those experiences like in non-for-profit orgs. Mm. Like what got me through a lot of those times was my own writing too. Yeah, cool. Yeah, or listening to other writers, you know. I think listening to um, other black writers and their own process is definitely very kind of calming mm. in your own experiences. Healthy self-care. Um, yeah, I... I like to, now that I'm back at uni as well, I like to not be online. I'm really thinking about, like, getting off Facebook and getting off, like, Instagram would be really hard 
and Twitter. I don't know. I think that's important. I think it's important to, I know that the internet is really important to a lot of people and it is for me, but like, I think it's kind of forget how to live in the real world. Um, yeah. So I, I think that's a big part of it, getting offline and like on any given day, at, at any given time, there is an injustice happening in this country. There's cops like storming into a black house. There are kids being taken from their families. There's so much to be angry about. Um, but you can't be useful if you're burnt out and if mm. you're whatever. So I try to try to. I all I ever want to do is be useful. So it's, yeah. I try to log off and I have a puppy, Ned. I love her so much. I go hiking a little bit um, and also have like really solid group of like family and friends. Um, And I spend as much time as I can around mob because Mm. I actually think that's the most important thing that we can do. Up next, we're revisiting a chat, Sarah, you had with Bunjalung woman Nessa Turnbull-Roberts. What do you remember most about this chat, Sarah? I mean, Nessa was such a thoughtful and generous presence to share space with. And as I was saying before, even now, hearing that yarn nearly three years after we spoke, it still very much resonates how she unpacks um, the academic space as a colonial space, your right to safeness in that space, um, remembering as well the most important thing of bringing that fight outside of the classroom because of that, you know, that gap and the gatekeeping between those colonial spaces and how, you know, you can have those big deep yarns around fighting and organizing in an academic sense but you have to remember to bring it outside into the community as well that wouldn't have access to those types of spaces either her talking about the lineage from activists and leaders such as charlie perkins and Arnie Schell, getting consent from your ancestors before making a decision to do such big things like organizing and then her talking about organizing to decolonizing. I mean, there was there's so many different layers, there were so many things happening in that chat, so many things that she was able to um, touch on and unpack and share such a um, thoughtful dialogue on. It was a really beautiful piece to listen back to, and I'm so happy that we get to share it again. So tell us a little bit about the journey you took being in a space like a university because like universities are such colonial spaces and they're elitist spaces. Mm. So to have to dominate as that as well with the area that you focused your thesis in and around would have been a mm. proper testing time, I can imagine. Yes, yes, it absolutely was. Um, as blackfellas, we are a minority in that space. Mm. Actually going into the thesis classroom, I was the only black woman in that space. Um, it was hard. Um, it was challenging and it was particularly even more challenging when you have particular teachers, particularly individuals who are against the message that you're trying to that you're trying to share. So I thought what a perfect opportunity to jump into my thesis and amplify these voices and amplify it in this academia space. Um, don't get me wrong. Um, I love I love what knowledge can do. I love what education can do. I love that 
you know, when I think of the Charlie Perkins and I think of the 1967 referendum and the movements, I'm so proud to know that we can walk into these universities. Um, but what I'm seeing a lot lately, a lot of people walk into these spaces and we're forgetting where we're from. We're forgetting to come back. Mm. We're forgetting to heal ancestors and our elders. They did not march those streets. They did not protest and fight for our basic human rights for us to go in and forget who we are and where we're from. Um, so as much as I love being in this space as, as an opportunity because that is resistance as well. You know, I've always said it, the resistance in media, exactly what you're doing, the resistance in the arts, the resistance in academia, the resistance on the streets, the resistance in our own, that sometimes we go into these institutional spaces um, and we can get caught up into black elitism. And I think we always need to remember to come back out who we are and where we're from and yeah. reground, you know. So that was really challenging. Um, and writing about triggering topics, um, it was very much linked to out-of-home care and that was the primary purpose of the recent mm -hmm. amendments to the adoption laws. Um, it's obviously very close to my heart. So when I'm reading, um, you know, a lot of the reports and I'm reading uh, reports that took place of the year of my own removal um, yeah. and what government's supposedly intentions were, um, that's something that really triggers me and it was really difficult for me. Um, but again, I had extraordinary supervisors um, who were absolute experts in trauma um, and I was very fortunate enough to be caught by really safe people. But again, yeah, that institution has gone a bit Yeah, more. because like that's something that a lot of people tend to forget is that black people when we go into these colonial spaces like they're quite they're, they're violent spaces they're culturally violent spaces because they say you know like come here and then you're successful you know but in order to become successful at our um, standard at what we want you have to forget your image you have to assimilate yourself yep. and so to have like safe people around you that was something that I always kind of kept around myself when I was mm. at university as well was that I always like my mum was like I thank God for my mum because she always pushed that on me you know keep safe people around you be yep. very picky about who you keep around you mm -hmm. and um especially with the type of conversation class that yeah. no one else wanted to touch on yeah and so i had to really be careful about the people that i had in my space but it's not something that's really touched on enough and that is that safe mm -hmm. space and it's um i think a lot of our young people when they go into those types of colonial spaces as well don't um understand that they have a right to that safeness mm -hmm. as well yeah and a lot of these spaces are also kind of i feel like our universities are Encroaching, encroaching in on spaces that were set up for black people to have those safe spaces like our indigenous centers, and yep. separated out into other departments and now they That's don't yep. yeah and so even still that fight is still ongoing and a lot of people don't see that they think that like university is a space is a space for progressive forward-thinking people but it's That's it's right. it's actually a very culturally violent space for our people don't you reckon no i absolutely i absolutely agree it can it can turn violent um, and I, you know, when I hear things like the University of Sydney shut down their Indigenous space um, without talking too much of, of run, running it down, but that's where Charlie Perkins went. He that's right. He started a, mm. a massive movement. Why aren't we proud of that? Mm. Why aren't we amplifying them? Why aren't we amplifying the Charlie Perkins? Why aren't we amplifying these voices where ultimately they had connections to these institutions that, again, was another way to divide us and particularly enhance white privilege and marginalise black people even more. But why aren't we looking at places like the University of Sydney where we have incredible warriors out of protest movements mm. um, and being proud of that? Um, you know, one thing when I'm, when I'm talking to a lot of young people and children is I remind them that it's our right to be at university and it's their privilege to have us there. 100%. Um, and I don't know if it was the same for you, sis, but when you're in class 
Um, and I particularly found this with uh, law subjects and I found it with some of my, my social work subjects. Um, when you're reading cases or you're reading stories and you know the family or you know the people, and being blackfellas, we know last names, we know families, we know communities, we know where they're from. And all I'm thinking in my head is, do these individuals and families know that their voices are being used mm. in the classroom context? Are they being compensated for every time their name's mentioned? Are they being compensated for being in this textbook now? When researchers are going out there and they're taking our knowledge and they're taking our pain and they're taking our traumas and they're contextualising that into a textbook mm. for us to pay, what, 250 or so dollars for a book yeah. and this is times so many people doing that course, is that community and that family and that individual being funded every time? Do they know that they're being spoken about? Do they know where that's being used? Um, and I think in the midst of whilst universities can be violent spaces, um, there's also a potential opportunity as mm. well. It does create that opportunity where we can, you know, have those degrees where we can walk into this line of those two worlds and be able to challenge the systemic the systemic pressures that we are faced with because our old people were fighting for exactly that. Yep. For us to be able to go into the same movies, for us to be able to go into the cinemas, for us, sorry, cinemas, pools, universities. But it's what I, it's like what I just said before, sis. We need to remember to come back out. Yes. Because those institutions were not necessarily built for us in our core spirit. They are buildings, they are division, um, and we are collective. We are yep. collective healing, collective love, and we need to remember that. Stand upon a land of an ancient wisdom Creator, spirit, beautiful, strong Yes, it giveth life for these sacred lands Eternal systems deliver through the sun To the depths it glisten Stars in the night crystallize life Ancestors, prayers in my ears so sublime Blood in the soil, never forget or deny That anguish, the cries, the ongoing genocide Devastation, theft, and wiping out of tribes Remorseless attacks, heinous crimes Poison in the waters, but the people we survived Inscribed with lies, and decimated with deceitful robs But the people we survived, pay respect and give Love and thanks one time One time, one time Peace, love, and unity to all my originals rise Ancestors in the land of miss every child, woman, and man, no matter what you said. The ancestors in the land, so why I pay respect. The ancestors in the land of miss every child, woman, and man, no matter what you said. The ancestors in the land, so why I pay respect. One of the spaces that we have where we can hear ourselves, we can hear each other mm. and we can push our voices forward is that space of protest. Yeah. And it's really unfortunate that um, we have to protest, yeah. you know, before um, the boats arrived here, before um, 1788, 1770, before 250 years of cook, protesting wasn't a part of our culture, but mm -hmm. it is a part of our culture now. Yeah. And it's really sad that, you know, we don't get to utilise this. We don't have the safe space of just submitting a complaint and trusting that the system will do justice mm -hmm. by us. You know, we have yeah. to galvanise and move together and yeah. you have a really strong hand in mobilizing those movements forward and creating that space for our voices to come in collectively together and be heard and so how do you um, navigate that kind of space like what would be the initial kind of approach that you take in terms of organizing that movement and organizing that space and making sure that it is a space that is ultimately safe and done appropriately you know sis the first thing that I do 
is I sit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I sit and I and I and I be really still, um, and I get consent, and I yeah. don't get consent by what's here and what we see. Um, I get consent by those ancestors, mm-hmm. um, and that's something that as First Nations people, we have that privilege to go and access when we need to gather that consent together. We can just ask those old fellows, is it something that I'm meant to be carrying? Is it something that I'm meant to be doing? Is this right for me? Is it not my space? Is it not? Because part of, I feel part of leadership um, and collective care and collective love. Um, it's knowing when to step back and it's knowing who to speak to. We need to remember as First Nations people, we have that access to tune into those old mm. fellows, but you have to reground. And it goes back to what we were yarning about before, removing ourselves from these institutional spaces and coming back down. Um, the second thing I do is I actually ask the people that are here, um, those safe people that I was talking to you about. Yep. Um, we would never, I feel, and, and, and this might be different for other people, um, but I, I don't necessarily make decisions as an individual. I always make it as a collective. Mm. So I go and ask the safe people that I know and then I call my elders and I call the elders that have taught me stuff and I say, is this something that we can do? Is it appropriate? Is it not? Um, and I gather that information and then I make my decision after that. Um, in regards to mobilising and, I guess, leading, you know, I say it all the time, organising to decolonising. Yeah. Um, the first and foremost priority for me when it comes to protest movements is healing um, because you're right, sis, we did not have protests and fighting natures and aggressive natures and we still don't have those natures necessarily um, prior to invasion. We weren't violent people. They raised their guns. We raised our hands. Mm-hmm. We held shields. We had no idea what was going on, yep. but we felt what was going on. Um, so when I reflect and I think of that, I think of, well, that's intergenerational trauma that's being passed down to our children now. That's intergenerational, intergenerational trauma being passed down to our kids. It's betrayal trauma, which is state trauma, um, and it's trauma that's going to be amplified when we come together for these protests. Mm. Um, so, you know, the recent process that we had for Brother Walker, yeah. Um, I was very fortunate enough to have um, brother Gavin, Gavin Straybrook, stand yeah. beside me. You and two are a dream team, by the way. <laughs> he, yeah, he um, he held space and and calling calling when I called Gavin, he's like, you know, I got you. Mm. And I said, well, you know, I got you. Um, having having that that partnership in that space, um, and then also you know looking to the audience, seeing you, my sister, seeing the other um, First Nations strong Black women in the front, um, seeing our elders, seeing our communities come together, seeing people that haven't met each other just connect, and seeing the non-Indigenous people actually know their place or where they had to stand mm. in that space um, was really really important, and, and I think that's what made it made it successful. But in terms of um, preparing and how I kind of organise that mobilisation and, and I'll yarn for ages so please cut me when I... No, you go, you go. too long. <laughs> um, I, my priority is healing. So, you know, first half of protest, I'll always try and emphasise healing because of that trauma that is there. I always know that kids are going to be there because unfortunately we are in a society today where at, since fucking... <laughs> Sorry, I'm the last one. Since, my bad. <laughs> You're um, right. Since, seven, since 1788, our children and we are targets to the state. Mm. And I know that our kids are going to be at these protests and I know that the colony is going to be at that protest. And so my fear always at these protests is will the, will the police start shooting? Will they get violent? Will they start hurting our jarjums? So that first half of protest is always prioritised to healing um, and it's always prioritised to undertaking smoking ceremonies and making sure that we create that safe space and safe space and emotional regulation. Um, and then the second part is 
taking it to the streets. Yep. It's actually making that noise and it's amplifying our voices. But first, we can't have these voices physically if we aren't amplifying the voices spiritually. Um, and that is the most important the most important part of any type of conviction and protest that we're putting out there. Um, I said it when we were at, at the recent protest together. Um, police didn't know what to do. They were bored. They were in the corner. They were expecting violence. They were expecting aggressive nature. They were expecting us to get wild, which we have every right to be and do so. But the thing is, we are not... We are not those things. We are not angry people. We are not um, We are not violent people. We are loving. We are strong. Mm-hmm. And for us to share our culture, for us to keep our culture, we've got to share our culture because sharing our culture keeps our culture. And that's how we do it. This leads us to the next conversation you'll hear with Wiradjuri artist and poet Jazz Money talking about the First Nations response and solidarity, the ethics of art and what work the industry has to do to enact meaningful change. When it comes to how audiences also engage with art, I mean, like, what are some ways that, like, people that are consuming art can have a better critical lens of it as well? Because, like I said, you know, we have these major media outlets that do not kind of think, you know, really crucially about what they're consuming and all they do is just post up, like, oh, my God, look what that mofo's doing. Super rad. Get your tickets, guys. And then after, like, you know, the outrage comes from the people that are being exploited, they're like, oh, hang on a second. We jumped the gun. That was a bad idea, guys. Mm. Actually, no, we disagree as well. This was bad. (laughs) This is bad decision-making. Oh, my God. Call them out, blah, blah, blah. And then it becomes a whole thing of, like, you know, call out culture, cancel culture. The media's manipulated the situation and blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's just, like, it's really infuriating and it all comes down sometimes to, like, consumers just not thinking critically either about the works that they're consuming. I mean, like, what are some ways that, you know, people need to kind of have a better um, engagement with art as well. I think this is a really, it can be like used as a really great learning moment for the institutions and the art institutions across this country. Sort of what you were saying before is like art always likes to think it's exempt and the arts industry likes to think it's like beyond, (coughs) you know, racism and sexism and homophobia. And it's like it's a colonial structure. It's a hierarchical institute that's been brought in with those same power systems in play. And... I mean, Dark Mofo were just unlucky. This stuff, like this is a very extreme example of making a mistake, but these sorts of like thinking processes exist in every arts institution across this country. And it's, you know, you can see it in the executive staff that are all white and you can see the ways that like the colony isn't invested in First Nations peoples until they see that they're going to get in trouble or they see that there's, you know, suddenly a financial incentive because like... Dark Mofo suddenly getting boycotted and all of a sudden like some boss fella going to lose some money and it's like, oh, we're going to back down because all of a sudden like something's on the line and that I think is really telling. But also like when we have Indigenous curators, Indigenous executives, people of colour in these positions of power, suddenly we have conversations that are involving the community and having like really deep engagement with what it actually is to live in the colony of Australia in this, you know, moment. And that's like hopefully an opportunity where people like Australia Council are going to look at their board and be like, are these the faces of Australia? Are these the people that should be making decisions about our arts industry? Or or can we sort of make this a space that is safe and is critical and ultimately is going to make better art? I love to see how like protest matters and and these folk who can say like, oh, we're going to we're going to double down. We're going to like stick with our, our bad ego plan. Like, they feel the heat when the community comes for them. Yeah. 
but I feel like there is power in our voices and we're really realizing that I think after the last year you know everything that's been happening institutions maybe still aren't understanding what they're getting wrong but they're understanding that there are repercussions Mm. and I think that's a really kind of exciting moment to be kind of able to mobilize on and galvanize is just turning that lens back on them and being like what are you doing like how can you be better and they're I think increasingly afraid yeah and that gives me a bit of faith (laughs) a bit of hope right like that together you know first nations communities queer communities we can kind of come people of color like we can all kind of rally and support each other and make positive change and we can really hopefully make these moments that of suffering into something much greater. That was Viradjuri artist and poet Jazz Money on finding hope and rallying for change within the creative industries. You are listening to Race Matters. And finally, we turn to a final conversation with Dr. Sandy O'Sullivan. They are a Wiradjuri transgender and non-binary academic teaching Indigenous studies at Macquarie University. A little while ago, we had a very nourishing conversation about queerness as a horizon and finding the expansiveness in our ideas of gender through anti-colonial politics. Not everything that we do or the First Nations people do is a response to the colonial project, but it needs to understand it. And, you know, colonizers came here and decided how we had to live, um, how we were allowed to marry or, you know, and they went on to set up universities and that described who we are and, and the ways that we should be and, and they limited it. And, you know, so with a specific focus on gender, um, this idea is to challenge that, is to say, look, of course, part of that was to impose this view and these sets of ideas. And so the strategy to do it is to literally just challenge it at every pass. And so this isn't about saying no gender exists. So there are plenty of people who believe that, but that's not me particularly. And it's not even the case that I make. You know, the case that I make is that um, if you... uh, if you set up something that is a colonial project, it's always about boxes. It's always about containers. It's always about people behaving themselves and pushing themselves into those containers, but also really crucially being pushed into those containers and not being able to get out of them. And, you know, and of course, the thing about the binary um, is that it is these two spaces that are very exclusive, you know, and so so non-binary for non-binary people, uh, that just doesn't exist. It doesn't work. You can't thrive in it. Um, so, you know, I'm not challenging um, ideas of the binary. I'm suggesting that I don't belong in it, Mm. Um, you know, that as a non-binary person, as somebody who's transgender, as somebody who sits outside of that space, Mm. that's not, you know, there's no discomfort in that. There's discomfort for others in it. And, you know, anti-colonial work is is not comfortable. Uh, And it's not meant to make people necessarily feel bad, but it's definitely meant to make them feel uncomfortable. Um, and they're different things. You know, it is about going, there's no, there's a comfort in a container. <laughs> let's mm. bust out of that and let's actually make something wonderful, mm. um, you know, which is the truth of people. You know, it's, it's just the truth of people. It's not, you know, something fanciful. And when I said before about, oh, look, you know, it's a lot easier now. One of the reasons is, is there's a lot more people who are identifying as 
um, as non-binary. They've always been non-binary, but they're talking about it and they're finding a, a language to be able to describe it. And I think that any of us who have any kind of um, position where it's possible to talk about this need to do it. I think there's, you know, I think about the the really, really interesting piece that um, J.M. Field wrote um, for uh, Indigenous X a, a few months ago. And it's a piece that kind of challenges the idea of finding one single language to talk about gender and sexuality and everything that's outside of that box. But it's also saying if it does exist, it comes from language. And of course, we've got hundreds and hundreds of languages, um, for instance, and that's just, you know, in this continent um, to, to describe. But also, there is something somewhat problematic about coming up with another container, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and, and of course, this is where uh, lots of people on Turtle Island or that area that's, that's often called North America um, were 30 years ago, you know, when the, the term um, uh, Two-Spirit was formed. Um, and it's a great term. It's really helpful until it isn't. You know, all of these terms are helpful until they become their own containers that don't allow um, greater complexity of language from language. So I know that's like not a really easy answer, but I think it's I think it's part of the whole we work beyond the binary. We all work beyond binaries in our lives, whatever that is, whether it's the gender binary or anything else. That idea of having to put something into if you're not this, you're this, mm -hmm. is we know how limiting that is and how problematic it is. Um, and that's one position. And the other position is not being able to fit into either of those things. And I do mean being able to, you know, I, I do mean that forcing, that, that idea that there's a default. I mean, it's why for a lot of non-binary people we say being transgender and, and that whole idea of being assigned something quite different to who we are at birth. Um, and then, you know, having a whole process of affirmation to, to understand. Community gets that in a really big way. You know, First Nations communities understand that because those, those um, impositions, those ideas are often forced on us. Settler queers will kind of construct an otherness in, for instance, First Nations people, but I think it really works for anyone, actually, um, who sits outside of that, including themselves, of course. Um, and, you know, that it can be this kind of idea of, um, of a fantasy otherness rather than a reality otherness. Mm -hmm. And, of course, everything is a fantasy otherness and a reality otherness as well. So, but I, but I think it can become romanticised. And, and, and two-spirit um, formation, that idea of it, from others, not from people who, who are two-spirit, but from others, often works that way. So it's this idea of the kind of secret, sacred, othered, you know, f fantasy of um, brown people or fantasy of, you know, of, of difference that I think we also have to challenge against. You know, mm. so it's it's th that tension is real and it's never about it's really good to have this and it's really easy to have this or or it's or it's a problem. Um, it's it is kind of, again, the problem of language, but it's also I love the fact that we're even having those kinds of conversations at the moment because you know, we're the ones having them. Um, we're the ones who are, who are actually starting to say these are, you know, do, do we need a word? Do mm -hmm. we need, um, and words are great. People love them. 
Um, but they're also just so problematic um, and people will default to trying to grab hold of any word that describes. And so, you know, we see it with uh, people want, people talking about language at our, at our centre. We came up with a guide to how people um, could talk and write about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And we did it because everybody worries about it, <laughs> like trying to come up with language and trying to understand what language to use and wanting it to be fixed and an answer. And of course, there isn't an answer. The answer is often uh, every community that someone comes from. And in the context of the individual, a queer individual, a queer First Nations individual, we know that it's how people want to describe themselves. That is all for Race Matters this week. You've been listening to a special edition for NADOC, centering an array of First Nations guests speaking to their own lived experiences, interests and journeys on their own terms. And finally, again, a big happy NADOC week to all my mob listening. If you want to listen back to any of these interviews in full, you can head to fbiradio.com slash race matters. I'm Darren Lasagas. I'm Sada Khan. And thanks for being with us. And we'll catch you next week. Race matters. 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 Race matters.